This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. A suspension in kindergarten was the first of many for Rosemary Allen. She went to public school in Los Angeles, and she says she struggled to understand why things like going into the boys' restroom or taking apart dolls got her into trouble. Now she's a professor of early childhood education at Metropolitan State University of Denver, and she's particularly interested in kids who act out in preschool. She says there has to be a whole new model for how kids are disciplined. Welcome, Rosemary. Thank you, Andrea. You were five when you first got suspended. That was for pushing a boy in your school who insulted your mother. Did you understand why you were being punished? I did not. I didn't understand why I was being punished. And no one actually talked about about it with me. Um, I was sent home and told to stay at home for a day or two before I was allowed to come back. And you say your teachers described you as disruptive and defiant. How did it feel to, uh, you know, hear that about yourself? You know, I, I didn't understand it. I was a very curious child who liked to explore and experiment, and I was encouraged to do that by my parents. So when I went to school, I didn't understand why the behaviors that were encouraged at home were discouraged at school and why I got in trouble for them. I didn't understand what the problem was. You were suspended dozens of times as a kid and expelled from three schools. What was it like to return to school after being suspended and come back and see your teachers? You know, I loved school so much, and I was considered a pretty bright child. And um, and as every child, I really wanted the approval of my teachers. So when I came back, I wanted to be good, and I tried to be good, but I didn't know exactly what I was doing that was causing so much trouble. So there was a disconnect, and I just didn't understand it. You were the director of Colorado's Division of Child Care. Now you teach at Metro State University, and you focus a lot on school discipline in your research and teaching. What's the earliest you see students being suspended? Andrea, if you can believe it, it's 17 months. Really? Children are kicked out of early childhood programs before they even turn two years old. And how do you think these suspensions, expulsions, uh, early on affect a child long term? Well, we know and research proves that students who are suspended and expelled from school, they begin to disengage from the education process. They're more likely to enter into the juvenile justice system. They are have a higher risk of dropping out, and um, their academic academic achievement is um, influenced in a negative way. We should say you're black, and part of your interest in preschool discipline has to do with what's called implicit bias. And we'll talk in a bit about how your childhood experiences play into what you do. But first, explain what implicit bias is. Um, implicit bias is an unconscious bias that we all have, and it's triggered um, in our in, during a mental process that influences the way that we perceive others based on race, appearance, age. Um, it's something we all have, and it's something that can also be reduced by applying research-based strategies. And what role does it play in school discipline and how that uh, transpires? Well, what happens, because it's an unconscious process, um, two children can be engaging in the same behaviors. And implicit bias will allow you to um, to 
rely on stereotypes Mm -hmm. to influence decision-making. So if two children are engaged in the same behaviors and one is black or Hispanic and one is white, then you really see and you're more aware of the behaviors that you expect to see because of the black um, the stereotypes associated with black children. So what happens, we see this disproportionate number of children of color who are then suspended and expelled from schools. And is there any evidence that black students are um, punished more often than white students for, for similar, similar offenses? Absolutely. And not only is there more evidence, but it's long-term studies that prove this out. Black children make up only 18% of the preschool population, but comprise 42% of preschool suspensions the first time, and nearly half of those preschoolers who are suspended a second time. It sounds like teachers might have sort of a cultural disconnect with students sometimes. Uh, Sometimes they do. And that's what happened in my situation. Again, the behavioral expectations from home were different from those at school. The teachers were not aware of the goals that my parents had for me to really explore and discover and be curious. So when I came to school and engaged in those behaviors, the teachers saw them as disruptive. They saw me as being out of control. And um, when I challenged some processes, they saw me as being defiant. And that's what we're seeing over and over in preschool programs. Now, you went to an all-black school. Um, Were your teachers mainly white? They were. I was amongst the first generation of students um, who entered into school following the Brown versus Board of Education decision. And um, you say you hit a breaking point as a kid. You didn't want to be the kid who got in trouble all the time, so you got a fresh start in high school. And it was the first integrated school you went to. And you say you felt kind of invisible there. Um, I did. And and it was um, a two-pronged process for me. One, they didn't know my background after so much trouble all the way through elementary and junior high. It was called junior high back then. But when I went to the new high school, they didn't know my background, so I had a fresh start. But I was not prepared for the invisibility that I experienced where teachers really didn't see me like I was more like part of the furniture. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm speaking with early childhood education professor Rosemary Allen. She teaches at MSU Denver. Allen got suspended a lot as a kid, and she says her experiences inspired her to become an educator and take a harder look at school discipline. You have a particular way of teaching your students about implicit bias, and you start with an experiment in the field. Um, How does that work? Um, I have to say that I am just fortunate to work for MSU Denver because of their commitment to equity and commitment to preparing teachers to work in a diverse um, workforce. But one of the things that we do is we talk about implicit bias, and we talk about how it develops and the fact that everyone has it. And then we give the students real-life experiences. So right after that lecture, we take a trip to Five Points. And I choose Five Points because of the negative stereotypes associated with it. And when they go, they are instructed to recognize their biases as they pop up. By this time, we've created a safe environment, and they feel very comfortable sharing their biases. And part of that is because I make myself vulnerable, and I share my own biases and my own experiences. What are your own biases? Um, well, I can, I can share a couple of things, and they happen all the time. Um, my son goes to Howard University. He wanted to live off campus. I went by to check out the apartment, and I pulled up, and there was an African-American male standing on the porch um, with his pants down a little low 
and a white t-shirt on. And my first thought, ashamedly, was that, oh, this is a dangerous place. I don't know if I want my son to be there. I tell my students, aware is halfway there. So in a way, you can have a bias against your, your own race. Oh, my goodness gracious. We're all influenced by this. No one escapes. We live in America. And there's lots of stereotypes that um, prevail here. We have to be aware of them. Um, I said I was ashamed of that because this is an African-American. My son and my husband are African-American males. But catching yourself, mm. aware is halfway there and saying, what am I doing? When I stepped out of the car and asked, are you a Howard student? It turned out that he was in the medical school there. But that's how implicit bias works. You did an interview with the education news site Chalkbeat, and you mentioned soft suspensions. What do you mean by that? And and why do you think it's important to include these in this conversation? Well, what happens is that um, we're finding because suspensions are being tracked, that people would rather not have them on their records, school districts, child care facilities. So instead of saying you're suspended, um, administrators will ask parents to take their child out because it's not a good fit. Mm. Sometimes they're told that the child can prevent having a suspension on their record if they just leave. Mm. And it's very hard to capture those data. Um, and it appears that there are no suspensions occurring, but parents are asked to pick up their child and children are still being asked to leave. Hmm. And um, there's this idea that, um, you know, you would want to create a policy where suspension is used only as a last resort and that it should be determined by a third party. How would that work? Well, one thing we have to understand is that teachers go into this field because they have a vested interest in improving the lives of children. And because so many of us are not aware of our biases, we may not be aware of how biases impact the decision to suspend. The studies show that suspension is actually an ineffective intervention. Mm. It does not work. Mm. And children who are suspended one time are at risk of being suspended again. So if a suspension is necessary, it should be first reviewed by a third party. Teachers should have the support they need to address the challenging behaviors. And then the third party who is not emotionally involved can then make a more objective decision about it. And... um some might say, you know, behavior is behavior, and even taking into account cultural factors, kid needs, kids need to follow rules. What are your thoughts about that? Um, I agree to an extent, but it, de- it depends on who determines the rules. Who had the right to say what I was supported for at home was not allowed in a school? When do we begin to take children's culture, their cultural behaviors and norms and expectations into consideration in helping their cultural way of being inform the teaching and learning process? Again, there's this cultural disconnect that you've been talking about. Yes. What if a teacher has a child who's just very disruptive, maybe even negatively impacting other students? What kind of a support could you offer those teachers to make it better for everyone? Oh, my goodness. The um, the need to address 
the behaviors teachers find challenging in the classroom is one of the number one requests of teachers. Mm -hmm. They want help. And there are programs such as the Pyramid Model, which is a multi-tiered system of support that helps to promote positive behaviors, address and prevent challenging behaviors. And for those children who end up at the very top of the pyramid where they need more individualized support, then they get that support so that they can learn to replace those challenging behaviors with more appropriate and more widely accepted skills. I imagine this could be very taxing, though, for the teachers. Um, it can be, but teachers are finding that when they have the skills they need to first prevent those behaviors from occurring, at the bottom of that pyramid model I talked about, about 75 to 80% of the children's needs are met there. And then they move up. By the time you get to the top of the pyramid where those challenging behaviors persist, it's only like 5% of the students who are there. I wonder, you've taught students in the past, younger students. As a teacher, did you ever have to suspend a student? Oh, you know, because I had gone through that, it was my personal tenet to never, ever suspend or expel a child. I did get to a point, actually, in 1998, where I was faced with expelling a child from the preschool program. Um, um, I had parents withdraw their children, and I had teachers threaten to quit. And I actually promised my teachers that that Friday, on a Wednesday, I promised them that I would inform the parent. I didn't sleep for two days. Mm. And finally... Because I was desperate for help, I called the Aurora Mental Health Center, and they sent over an early childhood consultant who not only helped me in handling the child, but everyone benefited because we learned some other additional skills that we didn't have at the time. Rosemary, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. Rosemary Allen is a professor of early childhood education at Metropolitan State University of Denver. Her research focuses on racial and gender disparities in preschool discipline. Chalkbeat Colorado recently interviewed her on the topic. Six rural Colorado towns reconsidered bans on marijuana in yesterday's municipal vote. All but one voted to keep those bans in place. That includes Hotchkiss on the western slope, which outlaws retail, medical, and recreational marijuana. We heard last week from the mayor, Wendell Kuntz, who, like voters, was skeptical of the economic boost pot could provide. Even the proponents don't believe this is a, a windfall for the town in terms of tax revenue. Um, that's an unknown. We just, it's, we're tucked away way up here in the North Fork Valley. Just don't know what kind of retail market there is for it. Buena Vista, Julesburg, Poncha Springs, and Silvercliff also said no to marijuana sales or production. The only town to say yes was Crestone at the base of the Sangre de Cristo Mountains, sometimes called the Shambhala of the Rockies. Crestone will allow retail marijuana sales and allow the town to tax it. Still to come, a hiking accident in Switzerland leads one scientist to a new discovery about climate change. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. 
How is a rock falling on a scientist's head linked to climate change? Professor Arno Temma's experience in the Swiss Alps a few years ago led him to study mountain guidebooks dating back more than 100 years. He found that climate change is making mountain climbing more risky. Temma is a professor in the Netherlands and affiliated with the Institute of Arctic and Alpine Research at CU Boulder. He joins us from the Netherlands. Arno, welcome. Thank you, Andrea. Good morning. So first, tell us about this rock falling on your head. Um, yeah, that was a, was a special event for me <laughs> in many ways. Um, we, uh, we were climbing a, a challenging but, but not, not dangerous route on, uh, on the Jungfrau. That's a famous mountain in the, in the Swiss Alps, and this was Bernese Oberland. Um, and we, um, we were about three-quarters up when we came across a patch of really loose uh, rock, rock falling down, and um, I caught a couple on the shoulder and, 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 and on the helmet, and that, um, that was a, a tense moment uh, for me. Uh, we got through it, uh, luckily, without any big problems, and we, we finished the day. Everything turned out well. Um, but yeah, that was, uh, that was for me uh, a very big moment, obviously, and uh, took me a half an hour or so to recover from it. <laughs> but you weren't seriously injured, right? No, no, I was not seriously injured. It was more, uh, let's say, a mental injury for uh, for a while, <laughs> um, and I, had, I was lucky enough to have great, uh, great uh, companions that day to uh, to take the lead from me. And um, what does all this have to do with climate change? Well, um, we decided, among others, to to climb this route, this particular route, um, based on a climber's guidebook, uh, which said, "Wow, that's a great route. You should climb it. Uh, it's relatively safe." and um, it obviously wasn't. And later that night, um, I got hold of a more recent guidebook, and that guidebook said, well, as beautiful as it is, don't go there. This is a very dangerous place. Um, and that um, was sort of a second stone on the helmet, if you want, metaphorically, because I, I saw, obviously, that these two guidebooks were very different in their assessment of danger. And I thought, if we are able to look back even further into even older guidebooks for many different climbing routes, then I would probably be able or possibly be able to, to extract uh, the signal of, of climate change as it affects uh, the danger of rockfall. So there's this correlation between old guidebooks and the change in climate uh, and how things evolved. Tell me a little more exactly. about that. Well, um, what, what I found when I, when I lined up all the old guidebooks and, and extracted all the information from them and, and, and did some, some statistics on that, um, I found that over the, the, let's roughly say, 100 years between 1850 and 1950, um, there have hardly been any perceived changes in, in rockfall danger. And as we get closer to the present, and especially in the last 10 years, um, people have been describing uh, a lot of changes in uh, in rockfall danger, hmm. and that uh, is, is it's very attractive, obviously, to link that to climate change, and it's also very much supported by by other science, which looks at much smaller um, areas uh, that indeed um, we might be looking at an effect of climate change. So, uh, what you found is sort of like anecdotal evidence, but there is research backed by other studies. Yes, yes. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, there was a study out in in Nature. Uh, that's a, an important science journal um, that, that corroborates that. And, and we've been seeing similar evidence over the last, I would say, decade coming out of people who have been looking at, at, at very small 
individual pieces of rock uh, and then um, uh, finding out what, what a rising temperature does to those rocks. Yeah, let's talk a little more specifically about what's causing the increase in these rock falls. What does it look like? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I distinguish two, two mechanisms by which in, in the high mountains, uh, in the Alps in this case, uh, a higher temperature can lead to uh, increased rockfall danger. And the first mechanism is that increasingly snow melts away, snow that used to be permanent. So snow patches that also existed in summer melt away. And um, that leaves the rocks that were captured in that snow, small and big rocks, um, lying on the very steep slopes, um, basically waiting to fall down. So that's one side of the story. It's, it's the melting away of snowfields. And the other side of the story is rock that was uh, permanently frozen is now exposed to freeze-thaw cycles. Mm-hmm. And freeze-thaw cycles lead to the breaking up of rock, and also that uh, adds to the uh, rockfall danger. Couldn't the loose rocks and more dangerous conditions be uh, more the result of people traveling the trails and an increased popularity in climbing now? That, that's a very, very good question. Um, I, that's, that's not the case to start off with because these are very, very few traveled routes. Uh, I don't think there are, and there are more than 10 parties a year uh, attempting these you know, relatively challenging routes. Um, in fact, um, the opposite effect has been described by colleagues where um, if, if a route is less traveled for a while, let's say for a couple of years, um, loose rock accumulates on them waiting to fall down when the first climbers come back again. Um, so so I, would, I would say no, and in fact, possibly the opposite. Now, <clears throat> different people must have written these guidebooks over time. And uh, I wonder if um, it, that could be subject to interpretation. Yes. Yeah, that, that was also my, my greatest fear when, when performing this study is that basically the writers become more and more scared over time and therefore they describe something that's more dangerous, whereas in fact maybe there are equally, equally many rocks uh, falling down. Uh, and, and I don't think that is actually the case. Uh, the first reason for that is that um, the guidebook authors train their, uh, their successors often for over a decade. You can see that in, uh, in, their, uh, in their forewords and in their introductions. Um, the second is that I only selected guidebooks from the Swiss Alpine Club, and I'm not sure that you know the Swiss, but they're very structured, they're very organized, and they're mm. very standardized. Mm. So that helped minimize this, this risk. And thirdly, uh, the writers of the books themselves actually describe seeing a change in, in danger rather than uh, uh, you know, uh, changing their, their um, assessments uh, for, for more uh, psychological reasons. How did you find these mountain guidebooks dating back more than a hundred years? Yeah, it was a it was a treasure basically that I found. I, I was lucky enough to uh, to talk to many climbers and ultimately find uh, out that the Swiss Alpine Club has its archive in uh, in Zurich, in Switzerland, uh, in an enormous library with several uh, nuclear protected underground levels. Wow. And, uh, I was. Uh, lucky enough to, uh, to be allowed in there and, and, and extract the, uh, the, the guidebooks that I wanted and uh, to be allowed to study them. So this really took a lot of digging. Um, how much more risky does all of this make mountain climbing? 
Yeah, that's that's also where where that's my main question. Ultimately, we you know it, it, it's we want to predict for climbers and for mountain tourists and. Um, I think uh, surely there is more rockfall, and and some other aspects of mountain safety are also affected by climate change. Glaciers are retreating, uh, uh, glacial crevasses might end up in different places than they were before. But all in all, uh, we also have manufacturers helping us out. We have uh, improved techniques over the years, definitely improved equipment. And one thing that is really helping us out these days is the fact that there are uh, internet uh, sites, forums where um, climbers post how they've experienced uh, routes that they climbed basically yesterday. So a climber these days wouldn't typically buy a book and read about the conditions on the route from the book. No, they would go to that website uh, and read about the conditions uh, in, in, on the route uh, as they were last week or yesterday. Mm-hmm. And that obviously is a, is a big improvement in terms of safety. You mentioned some of the other studies on this subject, like the one in Nature. What's the advantage yeah. of the method that you chose analyzing these old guidebooks and new guidebooks? Yeah, yeah I think um, the big advantage and, and, and improvement that it offers over existing techniques is the fact that this, this is valid and, and can be used over, over basically the entire European Alps where these guidebooks exist. Um, and um, the existing techniques are, are by necessity focused on much smaller areas. Um, because uh, techniques, th- those techniques don't work over, over larger areas. So it's, it's really an, uh, a tool that helps us to, to understand what happens over much larger areas at the, you know, while sacrificing uh, some level of detail in, in the conclusions. Are climbers here in Colorado in more danger because of this increase? Um, what does it mean for Colorado? Yeah, that's, I, I've been wondering about that. I think uh, one aspect is much less important for Colorado. That's this melting away of permanent snowfields. There aren't that many permanent snowfields in, uh, in the Rockies, definitely not in the Front Range. Um, what will uh, affect the Colorado Rockies is, is uh, temperature increase. Rocks will no longer be permanently frozen and will uh, experience freeze-thaw cycles, just as in Europe. Um, and that uh, will conceivably affect uh, rockfall rates. So, yes, some more rockfall danger is to be expected. So you found this correlation between climate change and increased rockfalls. What's the next step toward reducing the danger to climbers? Um, well, uh, it, w- it would really help if temperatures would go down globally, but that's not so easily affected, obviously. Um, <laughs> It's, it's, uh, it's, I guess it's not, it's not actually decreasing the, the, the rockfall rates. It's more behaving uh, responsibly, uh, making sure you have the best information available at the time and, and choose the best route based on that. Uh, I don't think uh, we can expect to, to affect, literally, the, uh, the danger itself. Arno, thanks so much for being with us. Absolutely no problem. Thank you. Arno Temma is an assistant professor at Wageningen University in the Netherlands and, a, and an affiliate of the Institute of Arctic and Alpine Research at CU Boulder. Just ahead, a new book about the innovators who shaped the centennial state. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Hundreds of historical figures have helped shape Colorado. Names like Pike, Long, and Route are well-known as icons in Colorado history. But there are other less well-known names like Florence Sabin, Casimira Barella, the Bent Brothers, and Chief Niwot. Author Phyllis Perry's new book is called Colorado Vanguards, Historic Trailblazers and Their Local Legacies. CPR's Nathan Heffel spoke with her. Phyllis, this is your eighth book 
about Colorado. You've written two on Rocky Mountain National Park, on historical Colorado women, and even one on the jerks in Colorado history. Uh, you say you've been wanting to write this book for a while, but other books got in your way. How, how so? Well, after writing the first book about Rocky Mountain National Park, I really wanted to write this book, which at that time I called Famous Faces and Places in Colorado. But um, got a telephone call saying that there was need for another Rocky Mountain Park book, which would be more pictorial with lots and lots of photographs in it. So I put Famous Places and Faces away for a bit and worked on that. Then I did write the book. But to my surprise, when the editor received the manuscript, they said that bad guys were what was selling, not good guys. That was so bad <laughs> and, guys. Okay. <laughs> and so she said, would you like to do the same kind of book, but write about the jerks in Colorado history? She said, you know, every one of those good guys you wrote about faced a bad guy. So it's just a matter of looking at it in a different way. <laughs> So I spent the next year writing jerks in Colorado history, and she was right. They were uh, an interesting group of people to look at, and even the jerkiest of them had a lot of good points. But finally, I got back to these famous people in the state in all kinds of different fields of endeavor who really made uh, a significant difference not only in the state, but in many cases uh, throughout the world. You include a definition of the word vanguard in your book's forward. It says, quote, the foremost or leading position in a trend or movement. How do the people in your book fit that definition? Each of them in his or her field went beyond what people had done before. They were real trailblazers. Phyllis, you write about historical figures such as Zebulon Pike, Stephen Long, and John Long Rout in this book, but I found sections on the lesser-known figures very fascinating. Uh, let's start with the Bent brothers, Charles and William. They built Bent's Fort in 1833, 43 years before Colorado became a state. It was located at a bend in the Arkansas River between what is now La Junta and Los Animas, southeast of Pueblo. What drew you to these two men? Charles and William Bent, brothers, were significant each in their own way. Both of them were interested in the beginning in the Missouri Fur Company, but it didn't take long for Charles to realize that instead of being a trapper, he was really the trader, and he began establishing quite a lucrative business of moving those furs from Santa Fe to St. Louis. When his brother, who was 10 years younger, William Bent, uh, was old enough he also went out to be a trapper and trader. And on one of those very first expeditions, he had a run-in with some Native Americans. One fellow was being chased by another group and asked Bent to hide him because he was about to be killed. Bent took him in, told the little group that was chasing him that he'd gone off that away, and uh, started developing a friendship which really grew strong with both the Cheyenne and Southern Arapaho. And it occurred to Bent that a fort in that area, in which not only trappers and traders like him, but also Native Americans could bring their furs. So we're talking about a big fort, and if you go to see it today, you can still see the little shops that ring the courtyard where you could trade furs for kitchen utensils, ammunition, whatever you wanted. 
So it must have been a very, very welcome sight. There was there was nothing in that area. It, it must have been almost like a, a castle or some sort of like Shangri-La when these people, you know, rode up to it. It would, and I think that's why William Bent, he was sort of the owner in residence. Charles Bent spent more of his time in Santa Fe, and in fact, he was eventually made territorial governor there. And things were not always easy at that time. They went from a time of friendly trapping and trading to a lot of problems with the Native Americans. William Bent found that the trapping and trading was such that it was dropping off and that soldiers were using the fort more and more. So he finally said he'd sell it to them. That was during the Mexican-American War in in 1846 when uh, U.S. soldiers were moving into the area. And then you had, of course, the the Native American population quite upset with things. Well, they they were. And William had married uh, one of the Native American chief's daughter, Owl Woman. And they spent much of their time in Bent's Fort, but they also lived out in the Cheyenne camp in a teepee with other Native Americans. And so he had a sort of a unique view of what was going on. And there was real concern about safety. So when William Bent offered the fort for sale to the soldiers and was offered such a small sum that he was disgusted with it, he waited for a time when... There were no settlers in the fort when he sent everyone else out, and he he blew it up in 1849 and uh, had taken about 18 wagons worth of material out, and he just moved down the river a number of miles to build another fort. And the destruction of Bent's Fort could be seen as uh, symbolic of the changes in the West between Native Americans and those moving into their area. Uh, Regiments of soldiers were moving into the region, which increased conflict. And that brings us to another person in your book, Chief Niwot. He also had connections to Bent's Fort. He was born around 1820, somewhere in Colorado, Kansas, or Nebraska, and eventually lived for a short time at Bent's Fort and learned English there. You begin his section with a scene. Would you mind reading that for me? I will. This is one of the first introductions we have of Niwad. The long-haired man stood up in the wagon and whistled for his horse. Handing the wagon reins to his wife, he leapt from the wagon onto the back of his buffalo pony. Giving a wild shout and holding his rifle above his head, he swiftly ran toward the huge herd of buffalo. Fearlessly, and with skill developed over years of experience, the rider picked out a fat cow from the buffalo herd. The man leaped to the ground, straddled the buffalo, and slit its throat. The members of the wagon train first watched in awe as the man began cutting long strips from the hide and hacking off pieces of the meat. Then they rushed to help. That night, everyone enjoyed a feast prepared by their Native American guide, Chief Left Hand. And Chief Left Hand is actually Niwot. How did you find that account? It was written in the memoirs of a man called Cook who was in a wagon train. And at one point, as Niwot realized that things were deteriorating for Native Americans as he also realized that in spite of the many treaties that were made, 
None of them were honored in terms of giving the supplies and food that the natives needed. So he went off in a small wagon with his wife and children to investigate farming techniques because his friends among the military kept saying that if the Cheyenne and Arapaho would stay put and farm, as others did, instead of having to roam great distances and hunting buffalo, that uh, everyone would get along much better. And it was after going to take a look at farming techniques in, in the area and on his way back to his tribe, that left hand joined this wagon train and he um, offered to guide them since he knew that territory. And the leader of that wagon train kept notes of his journey, and these actually are his words as he described uh, the events of meeting and being with Chief Niwot. And there are no photos of Chief Left Hand, of Chief Niwot. There are just accounts of him. It appears that Niwot's later life was full of broken treaties, uh, encroaching white settlers, and and seemingly constant migration, all of which eventually culminated uh, in the Sand Creek Massacre in 1864, where over the course of eight hours, U.S. troops killed around 200 Cheyenne and Arapaho people, composed mostly of women, children, and the elderly in southeastern Colorado. How did Chief Niwot navigate the changes he saw across Colorado at that time? Well, it was difficult um, because... Younger men in the tribe were angry and ready for conflict, and Niwot was always a peacekeeper. Uh, He was one of those people, no matter how many times and how many treaties had been broken, he always seemed to have that positive aspect that next time they would be kept. He was an interesting figure here in Boulder, when some of the wagon trains uh, passed by this way and were astonished, many of them seeing one of the the first Native Americans they'd ever seen, to have a chief speak to them in English. Because Niwot had a sister who had married a white trader and spoke English and taught him English also. So he not only could speak a variety of Native American languages, but he was fluent in English. But at Sand Creek, he had gone with his with his men to the fort, as he had been told. He'd gone to Sand Creek, as he'd been told. And then early in the hours of the morning, uh, Colonel Shivington and his men attacked. And the accounts of the battle said that Niwot's sort of positive attitude persisted even then. He ran up an American flag. He folded his arms and stood out there in plain sight and refused to attack them, saying, these are my friends. So to the very end, uh, he believed that peace could be found between the American government and those Native Americans. This is Colorado Matters. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Let's take a break and we'll rejoin Nathan Heffel's conversation with Phyllis Perry. She's the author of the new book, Colorado Vanguards, Historic Trailblazers and Their Local Legacies. This is Colorado Public Radio. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Let's get back to Nathan Heffel's conversation with author Phyllis Perry. She's written a new book called Colorado Vanguards, Historic Trailblazers and Their Local Legacies. 
Phyllis, tell me about Casimiro Barella. He was born in 1847 in a town that eventually became part of the United States at the end of the Mexican-American War. What made him an important figure in Colorado? He began then a pretty remarkable career, even as a young man at age 22, near Trinidad, which is where their farming territory was. He um, was made the Justice of the Peace. So that was really his sort of first political job. Soon he became the county assessor, and he, he began investing in, in businesses, in real estate. So he was really a big man in the state. He was a, a part of the uh, Territory Assembly in both 1871 and 1873. Uh, when Las Animas County was formed, he joined four other Spanish-speaking legislators at the Territory Assembly and spoke for many in the southern part of the state, you write, that could not read or speak English. Uh, and he spoke English very well. And, and in your book, you write about how much of an eloquent speaker he was. What is his impact on, on the state's constitution? I find that very interesting that uh, I didn't know. Well, he was one of... 49 people who drew up the Constitution for the state of Colorado. And one of the things that he insisted upon was that that Constitution be written not only in English, but in Spanish and German, so that everyone in the state, all of the immigrants from those two groups, could read it. And uh, there was considerable opposition. Um, People felt, you know, this is a constitution for the state of Colorado. We need to write it in English only. But he persuaded them not to do that. And when Colorado became a state, he was quickly elected as the senator from Los Animas County. And he began one of the longest careers that anyone has had in state government. He served for 40 years. He not only spoke out for the minorities in Colorado, but he worked very hard to see that the territory of New Mexico also became a state, and he was a real supporter in women's suffrage in Colorado, making sure that it was the first state in the Union that held an election to allow women to have the right to vote. So he didn't just work for Hispanics. He worked for any group that he felt was not being well represented in the state. Well, let's turn now to to, to a woman who was known for uh, public health crusading in Colorado in her day. Uh, that's uh, Florence Sabin. She was born in Central City in 1871, and, and early in life, uh, she'd hoped to be something very different than, than, than a public health crusader. W- what did she want to be? Well, she was convinced that she was going to be a concert pianist. And she studied very hard, and apparently she was quite an accomplished musician. But she had small hands, and her instructors said that in terms of being a great pianist, that was just not in the cards for her. So she began looking and trying to explore other fields that she might go in. And she had a great-great-grandfather who was a doctor. Hmm. And she'd always been interested in science. And so she began thinking in terms of science and medicine as a possibility for her. And she was eventually admitted to Johns Hopkins Medical School in Baltimore. Why was that significant? You mentioned a bit earlier about that, but why overall was that significant? When Johns Hopkins was founded, it was founded by two women. And at that time, there were very few women who were doctors and researchers in medicine. There were certainly lots of nurses. And so... uh, 
her in ambition was to go to this new school. And then she finally began to zero in and concentrate on uh, learning more about how to prevent and cure tuberculosis. And much later in life, Sabin returned to Colorado. After having a considerable impact in the medical field, she was the first woman to hold a full professorship at Johns Hopkins, as well as the first woman elected to the National Academy of Sciences. But when it was time for her to retire, uh, she wasn't ready, uh, was she? So the state's governor at the time, John Vivian, appointed her as head of a public health committee here in Denver, and that was in 1944. Uh, It seemed the governor didn't expect much to come from this, quote, nice old lady running the committee, but he was really wrong, wasn't he? He was. She had not wanted to retire, but it was mandatory at 67. And she took this committee assignment very seriously. I think the governor had just done it as as a nice gesture. But she soon came up with a Sabin report and began working with people in the legislature to pass laws because she found things were not at all good in Colorado. The infant death mortality was very high. The tuberculosis rate, of which she was an expert, was very high. Uh, Milk was contaminated. Her measures were fundamental and far-reaching, and they were also effective. Within a matter of uh, a couple years, she had cut the rate of tuberculosis in Denver in half. And one of the interesting things about her that was new to me is that in the national capital, there is a room called the National Statuary Hall. And every state is allowed to choose two figures from the state's long history to be depicted in statues in this hall. First of all, I didn't know that there was such a hall. (laughs) But secondly, I also learned that one of the two who was featured from Colorado is Florence Sabin. It's a very beautiful statue of her. You also write in your book that she had a love of baseball. And there's scenes where she would hold dinner parties until the baseball game was was completed. Um, and, And you write, quote, a baseball fan all her life. Sabin died quietly at her home on October 3, 1953, at age 81, during a seventh-inning stretch of a televised baseball game between the Yankees and the Dodgers. While researching the people in your book, how do, you, how do you choose what nuggets like this to put in your book? Well, I'm afraid it's a reflection on the author. <laughs> I, I really thought that that was neat, and I read descriptions of her dinner parties, and they were fun. They often had well-known figures, um, but they also had students who came to her dinner parties. And it didn't matter who you were, when you came in, you were assigned a job. Uh-huh. You might set the table. Uh, you might be in charge of doing dishes. That was not a prize job because she was so determined that no germs could exist in her kitchen that the dishwashing process was very long and involved. But my favorite was that you might be chosen to sit on the floor in front of the oven and actually time the number of minutes that the steak was to be cooked. (laughs) So she was fun to read about. So did these Colorado figures, do they kind of stick in your head? Are you maybe at the grocery store and and, and think of of a historical figure or or maybe you're you're getting your car washed? It seems you have so many of these people in in your head that you've written about. Uh, Sometimes... 
you get strange connections with the people that you have read about. And in Chief Niwot, we have a beautiful, beautiful piece of sculpture uh, right in the center of Boulder near the courthouse. And whenever I'm near it, I always walk over and take a look at him. We don't, as you've pointed out, have any photographs of him, but this is a depiction of what he might have looked like from the descriptions of people like the wagon master who wrote about him. Uh, so yes, I I do occasionally think back on these people and often thank them, thank people like Casimiro Barella, who cared about making sure people could read and understand what they were being governed by, who believed that, yes, even women have the right to vote. <laughs> Phyllis, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been a, a pleasure to be here. Boulder author Phyllis Perry's new book is Colorado Vanguards, Historic Trailblazers and Their Local Legacies. She spoke with CPR's Nathan Heffel. Read an excerpt and see photos of the people we spoke about today at CPRnews.org. That's our show for this Wednesday. I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. CPR News.